Howdy, everybody. I'm Robert. Before we begin today's episode, I just want to touch base and announce a few different upcoming competitions. Because of the lockdown, uh, the whole forensics community has kind of changed, shifted, and moved around a little bit more than usual. So a lot of tournaments are offering online alternatives. The silver lining, of course, is that pretty much anyone, anywhere, can compete in a lot of these tournaments because they're online. And this opens up so many different possibilities for people who may not have the funding to be able to go to some of these tournaments. So I'd like to announce just a few of them. The upcoming online middle school invitational that's going to be happening on May 9th and 10th. That's available on tabroom.com. You can also check out uh, the upcoming California Online Debate Invitational. That's going to be happening on Saturday, May 2nd and Sunday, May 3rd. And then there's also the California Middle School State Tournament, which is happening uh, on May 15th, 16th, and 17th. Uh, there are some other upcoming competitions that are coming up that are all happening uh, online, and I'll be announcing those on upcoming episodes. So stay tuned. And now sit back, relax, and listen to one of my favorite people in forensics, Mike Kyle, on this week's episode of Figure of Speech. Howdy, everybody. I'm Robert Cannon, and this is Figure of Speech, a podcast dedicated to the impact of forensics. Episode 23, Mike Kyle. Mike, welcome in. Nice to have you here. Thank you. <laughs> Mike, I got to tell you, it's uh, it, this... You are one of the people that I um, thought of first when I was designing this podcast. I said, you know, one of my gets that I want to be able to get on this show is Mike Kyle because I not only find you fascinating, I consider you a dear friend in the, in the forensics community. And I feel like every time we have a conversation, someone should be recording it just because it would make a good podcast. And so... Um, I, I, when I said, ah, maybe I should do a forensics podcast, I thought, mm, Mike would be a great guest. And I've kind of been, been saving you for a little while. And, and now that I've kind of <clears throat> figured out the, 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 the way to run this podcast, I'm excited to have you on because I want to pick your brain. Uh, you know, I, I'm amazed you made it through all my assistance and gauntlets. <laughs> of... <laughs> yeah, it took a long time to schedule this meeting. I had to, had to uh, do it three years ago before I even knew there was a podcast. Yeah, yeah. Mike, let's uh, let's start out with your beginning. So uh, the question I'm always interested in is, how did you begin? How did you find speech and debate in your life? Well, um, it, it all began uh, <laughs> when I was eight years old. Actually, I was uh, I had a very bad lisp, and I talked very cute, but it uh, was very bad. And so, <laughs> uh, when I was eight years old, the bully at my school. Uh, who, by the way, is in prison right now? Uh, he. Um, do you, Do you still go visit him? You show him no, like... no, I don't see him. But I, <laughs> I, I would thank him, and you know that's something I learned through my life. But he loosened the front spokes of my or wheels of my tire oh my on my gosh. bike, and um, my bike tire popped out, and I went over the front, and I hit my jaw. Uh, my jaw went sideways, my face went forward, and I broke it on both sides. So I shattered eighteen teeth. I had, you know, gum surgery, all these things braces for six years. But during my rehab, which in where I come from up in Oregon, rehab was basically, you know, here's the TV. My brother sat me in front of the TV and he said, uh, I had two months where I was just intravenously fed and I couldn't talk. It was wired shut. Oh my but after gosh. that, I started, I started eating like, you know, soft foods, marsh, you know, everything that was soft. I chef Boyardee. I hate it now because I ate it so much, but I, my brother sat me in front of the TV and he said, you know what? 
just copy everything you hear. So I learned, you know, uh, here I come to save the day. And I learned, um, hi ho from E-Frog here. And I learned all of these voices just by, you know, copying them. Uh, mostly cartoons, obviously. <laughs> and it got rid of my lisp, which is awesome because my jaw had a little bit more fluidity to it. And so by the time I got into middle school, my brother was in speech and debate uh, at South Salem High School. And he told his coach about me that I was crazy and I could do these voices. And so mm -hmm. he let me compete with the high school team. Mm -hmm. And I started doing humorous interp. And how, how old and were you at this point? I was in seventh grade when I first started competing, which is pretty rare back then because right. there wasn't a lot of middle school. Yeah. And they let Sorry you compete with the high schoolers. They did. And so I went to my first tournament and I won it uh, in humorous interp. And uh, I caught the bug. Pretty soon I was doing things um, like when I got into ninth grade, uh, they, they had introduced this new event called Lincoln-Douglas debate. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm that old. <laughs> Uh, 1979 and i love that i thought that was the future of the world right there because it was slower than policy which is what i was doing when i first started and um yeah that's pretty you know the rest is just me competing doing i did i did have i did run the first counter plan in the state of oregon um, <laughs> baylor introduced it at their camp in texas and so i read about it i put it into the round and i told the judge and the judge looked at me like it sounds good. So we won and we won the tournament. And uh, that was that was my freshman year of high school. I still have that trophy. That's the one trophy. I, I kept three trophies. So that was one of them. I kept. So you began as an HI performer. You began as an interpreter. Is that sure. right? And yeah, do, you, do you remember what it was that you did? Like what piece? Of oh, it? yeah. What was it? Yeah, it was it was the Late Show Pitchman by Paul Allen. If you remember Paul um I'm sorry, Steve Allen. Uh, Steve Allen was the, the host of the Tonight Show before Johnny Carson. Right, right, yeah, yeah. And so you did like a like a an interview. What was it? You used to do a late night. Yeah, the late night talk. The, it was called the the Late Show Pitchman, and it was a monologue, which my coach at the time, uh, Bob Withicum, who's still, you know, out there. He's I think at Whitman College. He coached uh, nine or ten big championships for for college, but he was my high school coach and uh, i remember him giving me this saying you know it's a good way to start and he said nobody really wins with monologues but mm -hmm. you know try it out and so i was a policy debater so i just basically uh spread and it, it worked because the pitchman had parts that went really fast and so i won i think i won 15 first place trophies with that uh wow that little guy there it was, it was a nice piece, and then I graduated. I graduated into Monty Python or pre Monty Python. I yeah, think. I feel like I feel like most uh, high school HI performers go through a Monty Python Monty Python phase at some point. You, you got to. <laughs> um. So you, you did you start out as interp or you said you you did policy? Were you doing that kind of simultaneously? Yeah. No, I was doing um, I was doing interp like I said when I was uh, in middle school competing. Back then they didn't have rules about what grade you were in because mm. nobody was that young. And so uh, I was able to get my double ruby uh, my freshman year. And so I just competed a lot. I just wow. went to everything. And you know what's a side note? My stepdad at the time um, was the you know involved in the Oregon school boards, but he's so supportive of me. He kept 
telling me how great it was, what I was doing. And he drove me to tournaments and he made sure I made it to all the practices. And it was so fantastic, his support. And he was an ordinary guy too, but, but a really great heart. And so it wasn't until two years after he passed away, which was about 10 years now, um, that I got these paper clippings. And my stepdad was the Idaho uh, state champion in oratory. And he had what? won the American Legion. Yeah. And I never knew. He never told me that he was involved in forensics. And um, now, then I realized, oh, my God, no wonder he was so you know cool about me going to every tournament. Well, that's really interesting. So you you did this all through high school, right? Yeah. And then did they did you go to a national tournament during high school? I did um, my sophomore year with Monty Python, or pre Monty Python. It was actually Dudley Moore, uh, Peter Bennett, <laughs> Ellen Cook, um, and it was called Beyond the Fringe. And I I made it, but um, I didn't do well at at. Um, I guess nationals was burnout on Monty Python at that point and they thought it was Monty Python. So yeah, I didn't do close that enough. I was, like, I was literally like four, four, three or something. Yeah. It was good, but I mean, it wasn't good. enough. Well, I think there's a little bit of, um, you know, you come from, you're, you're a big fish in a small pond kind of thing too. Sometimes, you know, you show up at nationals and not you, but just people and they show up thinking, I'm going to just destroy this tournament. And then you go, Whoa, there's, there's some really strong talent out there that you just have never seen before. And stuff that was winning all over the place. I mean, I, I, I grew up in Tennessee, and pieces that would just be killing in Tennessee, they go to nationals, and, you know, they, they were done. They were toast. You know, it, really, what affected me more, honestly, was this judge who was this notable judge. I can't remember. I don't remember his name or where he's from, but he said to me on, on the ballot, he said, this is simply karaoke. I was I was at the West End of London during this time when this was you know playing, <laughs> and you simply just imitated them. And I remember to myself, well, I wasn't at the West End, so how was I? You know, this we right. didn't have internet or anything. So when the Beyond the Fringe uh, DVD came out in like 1989 or something like that, or I don't know, it was 90 something or whatever. I bought it and I'm like, Oh my God, I got to watch this. And they were terrible. <laughs> I was so much better. So I, you know, I, at that point it just affected me thinking, Oh God, he thinks I'm just a sham. I'm just a karaoke artist. I remember I was doing a duo one time and uh, I had a judge write down, uh, it was a Neil Simon piece and it was in college. We didn't know what we were doing. And he said, uh, like something to the effect of Neil, I think he wrote like Neil Simon would be turning over in his grave and this oh. is not the way Neil Simon would want it and stuff like that. And we read that comment and we were kind of like, this is, that's messed up, man. Like, first of all, it's an interpretation. You're supposed to be able to interpret however you want. You don't worry about what totally. the original author thinks. And the tournament made him apologize to us because uh, it was a swing tournament. So we got the ballot back and then the next day we saw him, he was still there judging and they made him come up to us and apologize. And Whoa. it was, uh, it was kind of awkward after that. Like, I'm sure he resented <laughs> having to do that, but he did it. Uh, at any rate. So yeah. it, I, I think sometimes judges just get, they get off on a power trip, you know, and they're like, how dare you impersonate this thing or do this performance in a way other than was intended. Or, you know, it, it, it's, people just don't, they don't respect the fact that you're a performer as well. And you're, you've got your interpretation. So I mean, I, I, my favorite things sometimes to watch are just how people take, what we consider 
a certain way and mm-hmm. just take it such a different way. I, I, when, I remember watching, you know, the Dora Explorer interpretations. I don't know if you ever saw those where mm-hmm. she's like caught smoking marijuana or something. And it was just, <laughs> you know, I love to see things taken just different way. I saw a Harry Potter uh, piece that was just completely different than I'm sure what, you know, she wanted it to be, but whatever. That's the whole beauty of the the yeah. the art. Well, so you did debate as well, and you said you started out as policy and you switched over to LD. Talk about that for a minute. How What was yeah, that like? Well, you know, it's funny because, again, like you said, you're in your own little world. It was actually called organ-style debate. I don't know if people mm. knew that. Or, again, I'm, I'm pretty old. But um, cross-examination was what we called it. We didn't call it policy debate. It was CX or it was organ-style. And my freshman year, I had a couple of different partners. Uh, one of my partners never found again, couldn't find. My other partner, Dave Bansmer, I found. He's out there. He's on my Facebook. He's a great guy. Uh, he taught me a lot of things, trust me. But Mark Tone is this other guy I was with. And we went to Lewis and Clark in open policy. And we got into that final round. Um, and it was on stage. And I had been doing policy for about a year. Um, you know, it was... Uh, my freshman year and we were in the final round and I remember just looking at him and he said just don't say anything <laughs> I just remember thinking that that's not good advice but I, I'm gonna have to at some point I, I said, think they're gonna okay, notice I think I think I know what you mean um just don't say anything stupid right okay right. so uh, we 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 lost. We came in second place. But it was one of those that that was such a huge regional tournament back then. Lewis mm-hmm. and Clark was one of the big ones. So was U of O. And um, I just remember thinking, wow, you know, everybody was saying you're a freshman and you made it into the finals at Lewis and Clark. And so uh, I got noticed by a lot of people after that, for sure. So you really are bit by the bug at this point. I mean, you yeah. You, if you're doing interp and debate i mean you're you're all over the place and you you've no. got to be going to a lot of tournaments <laughs> you know i was but somehow i managed to also be the captain of our drama uh department and i was also the captain of our uh, freshman sophomore swing choir so i was the ultimate art nerd um you know people called me other things but uh, <laughs> i was so small and uh, it was so fun for the jocks to put me in a garbage can because the only way I could actually get out because I was so tiny was I'd have to tip it over and be covered in garbage. And I remember just going to, you know, drama and going to choir and thinking, screw all those people, you know, whatever. I'm just going to do this and I'm going to make it into, um, you know, my life. And I did. I just I did it. I did musicals. I did. Uh, the Northwest Jazz. I did the uh, Mount Hood uh, Community Jazz Festival, which was a huge jazz festival. I mean, it's nationwide. It's worldwide. And as freshmen and sophomores, our high school group won third place as freshmen and sophomores. Oh, wow. And our, our juniors and seniors won first place. So we were wicked good. We had nine choirs in our high school. Uh, we had 150-foot fly space. We had a balcony with spots. I mean, we had green rooms and an orchestra pit. We were a public school that just was really focused on the arts. And I, I can't tell you how grateful you know I am to the fact I had that in my life. That's incredible. So you, I mean, you're incredibly involved in performance, especially vocal performance, whether that be choir or speech. And then when did you go to college? 
<laughs> uh, you know, this is something else a lot of people don't know, but I actually, my first scholarship offer was from Western Oregon uh, College uh, or Western Oregon State College, which was WASC. It's now W-O-U, it's Western Oregon University. But back then they had a great vocal program and they offered me a scholarship in vocal studies and specifically in opera. Uh, because I was the winner of the Northwest Vocal Competition. Wow. And uh, and I had a pretty large range. I had about mm -hmm. a seven octave range. So I could really go from bass, almost bass two, but bass one all the way up to tenor one. Well, and, you have a good voice just naturally, just a good speaking voice. You know, just like I listening to you, it sounds like, a, you know, you should be doing voiceover for movie trailers and things like that. So I can only imagine if you could sing, they got to be throwing money at you. Why, thank you, Robert. Um, so I, I did it, and then Arizona State came at me, and they said, you know, we want you to come down to our program. And um, it was a guy by the name of Clark Olson, who I think is still there, which always amazes me when how, oh, how old I am to see <laughs> my coach is still alive. But uh, they they came at me uh, to, to sign up for the Walter Cronkite School of Broadcast Journalism. The Hugh Downs uh, communication school had not been really created yet. And so back then it was the Walter Cronkite school. And, um, I said, you know, somebody said to me, uh, Mike, the ratio of boys to girls is like three girls to every guy. And I'm like, <laughs> well then I guess I know where I I'm guess, going. I guess I'll be going to Arizona state. So I did, I loved it. I enjoyed my time there. I competed at all these different tournaments. They, I, that's where I got my nickname, Skip, Skip Kyle, mm -hmm. uh, because as you know, with college competition, you barely show up for classes uh, because you travel. <laughs> yeah. So there's, and I, I loved Arizona state. I, I took a little hiatus in the middle there. And when I came back, um, I actually switched over to the Fulton school of engineering and I graduated with, um, an engineering degree. So uh, it's crazy how I go from opera to, speech to engineering but it was my dad who said okay let's go to a news station we went to channel four, uh, 12 uh, nbc in, in phoenix and my dad was able to ask them you know what p different roles made and we found out most of the roles were internships um not even paid and then the, the anchor itself only got up to and this was back in the 80s so mm -hmm. it was probably about 90 grand and i said well that's you know that's decent and he brought me over to a large printing operation um, in graphics. And he, and he I asked a couple of people what they made. And they, they didn't talk the same way. When, I, when they asked how much they made, they said things in, with decimals. They said, oh, 1.4, uh, 2.1. <laughs> I, I was like, is this a football game? And my dad's like, they're talking millions. And I'm like, uh-uh. <laughs> So I said, guess what? I'm going to get an engineering degree in, in graphics communication and printing technology. And um, Your dad had done a lot of printing, is that right? Yeah, my dad was a politician. He was the mayor of Tigard, Oregon in 1961, I believe, one of the first mayors of that town. It's a town right outside of Portland. And so he uh, ran for state representative against a guy by the name of Vic Atia, and he lost which he couldn't have lost to a better person. Vic Atia became one of Oregon's probably finest governors. But he um, he went into printing and, and did a lot of work in sales. He was always the top salesperson. And I noticed that every time they promoted him to a sales manager or sales director, he would quit. 
and he would go off and become a salesperson again. And I couldn't figure it out. Dad, what's, what are you doing? And he said, well, they, they make me a sales manager because they're tired of paying me all the ad commission because I'm such uh. a good salesperson. And that was such a life lesson for me, you know, to say, it's not about the title. Um, it's about what you love doing. And he loved sales. And so my dad, before, before he passed away, he had started a company where he, uh, he took people on golf trips and he entertained them by telling jokes and running the cocktail party afterwards. And, um, it was his life's dream and he played golf to finish out his life. And it was awesome. That's, that's really incredible. I, I love this, this idea of like your dad bringing you down to the print shop and just saying, all right, let's, let's ask them about what they do and how much money they make and make that making such a huge imprint on you for pardon the pun. Um, so nice. you you decide to start doing engineering with kind of this focus on printing, yeah. and then when you're out of college, you I'm assuming you get a you get a shop together for that, right? Well, before uh, before college, before I started, uh, I you know as I was on my way down um, uh, because I was down to visit my dad who was in Arizona, and one of the reasons why I went to Arizona State. Um, I started a business. I started a delivery business. Was he in and, Phoenix or was he yeah, somewhere Phoenix. else? Yeah, okay. Phoenix. In Phoenix, and he and he said, you know, here's a couple hundred bucks. Start a start your own business because I had he had given me some money to invest in stocks, and I did pretty good for him. So I, he knew I had some talent. So he gave me a couple hundred bucks. He said, start a business. Let's see if you can do it over the summer. So I got a couple of my friends, and we started a delivery service, and uh, we bartered everything, you know, because I didn't have any money. I bartered my business cards and all this, and I got a pretty good clientele. Pretty soon, I was delivering to a lot of places, a lot of printing companies that needed to deliver. And so in three months time, I sold that operation for $10,000, um, which gave me my spending money uh, and, and got me through for quite some time through college um, because my dad uh, was arrested at that time. So I didn't have anybody to really help me. What? Um, yeah. Just, uh, just, oh my well, God. you can't say he was arrested, not at least give us a, a little well, nibble on this. I mean, you know, my dad had a very abusive family. Mm. And I, I really learned, not scientifically, but I definitely learned that when you're in an abusive family, it's hard to not show that same kind of anger. Mm. Uh, and he did uh, towards my stepmom, and, and that got him arrested, which um, was a real turning point in my life because he wanted me to testify. Um, I, can, I can talk about this now because my dad passed away, but he wanted me to testify on his behalf, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't lie. And so he ended up going to jail. And obviously, I ended up having no money. But luckily, I had sold the business to another printing company who wanted all of these customers that I was delivering to for all of these other printing companies. Mm. So that's why they paid ten grand for it, and which was a really valuable lesson for me. And so I started um, after uh, college. I started doing a lot of entrepreneurial types of things. Where I would at one point I became the general manager of uh, these three printing operations, and um, it was. It was my chance to really say, I can do this. I can turn this company around because it was failing. And I just got in as general manager. And I did. In six months, I turned it around. The owner flies out from Michigan and he says, that was great. I, and he said, but honestly, I didn't expect you to do anything with this company. I was using it as a tax shelter. So I've sold it to somebody else. Best of luck. <laughs> and I just, again, <laughs> lessons learned of wow he didn't put me in general manager because he thought i was so awesome he thought i was gonna tank Fail. the company right so 
uh, some of the printing operations um, had found out about this and um, I ended up doing pretty well in printing. Um, it was just something that I, I had a knack for. I opened up the California market for one of the Phoenix operations there and I, I made a pretty good living back then. So, And then uh, I know just because we've talked about this kind of thing before, you go from printing into filmmaking. <laughs> what What's that like? All right. So what's that leap? I, you know, you, <laughs> I, I, I love that you think I'm in, I was in filmmaking. I was honestly in, you know, distribution. Distribution that, anyway. Yeah. Because I, I'm not a filmmaker. I mean, I know a lot about filmmaking and the, on the business side of things for sure, but I am not a, you know, talented you know, editor, filmmaker, camera, anything. Uh, but somebody came to me and said, Hey, I've worked, you've worked a lot with the home video industry. And I had, uh, I was also on the, um, uh, video, oh God, what was called VSDA video, some uh, software, yeah, video software dealers association. I was on the board of uh, their filmmakers program and a couple of things that I helped run. So I knew the industry real well. And so a filmmaker came to me, Richard Green, very talented guy. Um, he's the voice for Smokey the Bear. He's mm. the voice for AC Delco. And he's got his own whisper room. He was awesome. And he basically said, hey, let's, you know, uh, build build a barn. He already had the barn, but, you know, let's put on a show. And he had a film he wanted me to help get distributed, Seven Years Zigzag. And then he had a David Lynch film called I Don't Know Jack um, about uh, Jack Nance. And so he said, can we, can you help me get these things out there? And I, I became very familiar with that whole thing because I found out that 14 or 15,000 films were made at the time were made a year and about 400 got distribution. And if it wasn't a horror film or some kind of, you know, really indie comedy, good luck. And so um, I learned the business the hard way. We started our own studio because we not only were uh, distributing, but we were also producing at the time. And so we, we ended up help producing 20 more additional films uh, and put it into a really cool format. Someday I'll tell you about that because that's, that's a whole different, unless you want to hear about it. it was Sure, yeah. Well, I mean, this, there's no time like the present. All right. Well, we we decided that the film distribution cycle was just controlled by the big the big players, and and that the distributors themselves were obviously looking at one thing, and it was not artistic. It was literally just about you know what was the potential for it to turn any kind of profit, and and where could they put it? Did they have a market for it? And then you had to get through the film festival gauntlet of of at least showing some kind of credibility, et cetera, and those kind of things. So. We said, why don't we create a film festival on DVD? DVD was basically, it was, it was gaining its traction and it was certainly mature enough to, to handle it. We, so we took a couple of shorts and a feature film. And because we were distributing it as a film festival, we would put it into video stores and they were only allowed to rent it for one month. And so by doing that, we weren't selling it. Hmm. And so therefore all of the filmmakers didn't have to have clearances on their M&E and on their, you know, all their different uh, titles they had to have run through so they could run, we could run festival films. And so we put so many filmmakers out into the public um, that were really just uh, doing amazing films. We had one film that, that coordinated or um, choreographed this whole dance scene to a David Bowie song. And they didn't get clearance on the music until after they had it in the can. And 
you know, Warner Brothers comes and says, yeah, no problem. Um, $500,000. <laughs> and they were like, what? And we said, yeah, you need to clear m &E before you even put it in the film. But we helped and we got films out there and we showed shorts and we would get these uh, amazing actors. Like um, my favorite was Patrick Swayze and his wife. And we would get them into our studio and we'd have them introduce these filmmakers and be the host of this month's film festival features. Mm. And we had, um, uh, who was the guy? Oh, God, David Carradine. And we had Louis Gossett Jr. And we had, um, uh, we, we got to meet with Julia Andrews and Blake Edwards and just amazing people. For me, it was just, I was such a popcorn film kind of guy. I had never been exposed to such art and such, you know, independence. And pretty soon, um, I started getting published in like Variety and Hollywood Reporter and even Entertainment Weekly as Mr. Independent. That's what they called me. And, and it was because I was helping filmmakers through the filmmaker program at the VSDA mm. and through Had to Be Made Films. Um, we were really helping them get distribution and get their work, their name out there. And um, a lot of those people started out with shorts and they came, they became amazing, um, you know, filmmakers. And so I was really... I was really proud to be part of it. I felt very artistic, even though I was the business guy. I was always, you know, I was never top line. Well, as a filmmaker myself, I can always, I can attest to the distribution being one of the hardest aspects of filmmaking. And sure. it's something that it's so, I don't know, it's not very glamorous. You know, when, when you think about, you're talking about putting on a show, it, everyone's okay, well, we got to memorize our lines and you got to build your sets and everything else. But the hardest part is how do you get butts in the seats how do you get people to watch your show and that's a whole art in and of itself that most people most filmmakers are not really drawn to yeah and they're not drawn to direct to video either yet that's right. probably in my opinion the easiest way to get into uh the the industry is to really focus on a you know some kind of horror film mm -hmm. uh, or some kind of you know real it, you know, kitschy kind of independent film because there's a lot of distributors that will pick those up independent uh, and get them out to video and, uh, you know, cult followings uh, came from the, a lot of those. Now, yeah, they did have theatrical release, limited for sure, mm -hmm. but they their real following usually became, you know, when people got them on video and started passing around. Well, let's steer back into speech. So yep. at some point, you leave the distribution company and and the printing business behind and you strike out on your own, I guess we started teaching. Is that right? You started yeah. teaching where? Well, well, what happened was that the, the film studio just, you know, in uh, distribution, uh, we started getting a little greedy. We started going directly to the studios to help distribute uh, these films and these videos directly to the video stores. At that time there was 31,000. Uh, and now there's 14. Right. Uh, so the industry has changed, but we, we did that. And then the, the, uh, wholesalers flash VPD, uh, Baker and Taylor all stepped in and basically said, no, you're not going to do that. You're not going to circumvent us. Uh, and they put me out of business. And so we, we went out of business. We couldn't keep it going. Uh, and so I decided I would go back into printing. Uh, I did for a little while. I actually had a little stint in healthcare, <laughs> which is crazy, uh, but in marketing role. So I was always using my marketing backgrounds. Mm, and so I decided, you know, I, I really just want to retire. And um, I also went through, by the way, um, 
divorces and, you know, I just lost everything. At one point in my life, I lost my wife, my car, everything I owned, my, you know, all my money that I put into the, the studio, um, everything I had. So I sat there on the couch and I said, well, I could start another film company or I could just make a lot of money back in printing. And at that point, money sounded good. So I went back into money <laughs> and, and at one point I just got tired. And with my third and final wife, Joan, um, I said to her at one point, I just want to retire and just, you know, coach speech and debate, maybe play golf in the morning. And she said, you should. And I went, really? She goes, yeah. I'm like, cool. It's probably why I married her <laughs> and why she's my <laughs> final wife. Um, is that I, so I looked and I, there was nobody hiring. I mean, if you remember 2011, 2010, uh, we were in a recession. Recession, that was pretty, right pretty bad. So nobody wanted, and nobody had speech programs or anything. So I found this little academy, or as they say in the Korean world, a hug one. And uh, I went to it and I loved it. I loved working with kids. I loved being back speech and debate. This was like my dream job. And so I taught them LD in two weeks and I brought them to the Jack Howe tournament. And I actually got two of the kids to actually place. And I said, you know, if, if you can teach LD in two weeks, just hang on, let's, let's do this. So I started getting more and more, you know, kids in, they, they'd heard about me or seen us out on the, the circuit. And we, I built the, this academy up to about 60 kids. And after about eight weeks, my wife came in for lunch and she said, Hey, um, how is it having a camera on you all day? And I said, what? She goes, yeah, there's, there's a little lipstick camera up in the corner of your room. The owner's watching it and you're on the main screen. I said, what are you talking about? And I went back in and sure enough, there's a little camera in my room. So that day I took my, my co-captains at that point and we printed out a picture of the room from that camera angle and we printed it out in color and we hung it in front of the camera. Uh, and it stayed there for about two weeks until the owner found out, you know, figured out that hmm, he was looking at a picture. Yeah, it hasn't changed. Uh, it's funny, so, you, put, you put your printing and your filmmaking background. Exactly. <laughs> and so, yeah. Uh, <laughs> All three, I got... your speech, your printing, <laughs> and, your, and your distribution <laughs> video uh, background all came to a head. Uh, yeah, if I would have sang, it would have been perfect. Yeah, right. But anyway, so I, I ba they found out, they got mad at me, and I said, you know, I don't want to be in a place where you think you have to film me. That's not what, you know, I'm about. And, so, and I had built their business up big time. So I said, well, I'm going to go start my own place. And I remember they laughed and they said, oh, you have know nothing about this business. You, you know, you, you'll never you'll never be able to do it. Good luck. So I guess here I am eight years later. We're, we just turned eight and um, we have 300 students. And we should um, mention the name of your business is Nova 42. Sure. Uh, the, the main corporation is Nova 42 FPC, which stands for Flexible Purpose Corporation. Um, I, I structured it that way because my wife is a lawyer and she knows what she's doing. Uh, and it allows us to be a for-profit entity with a nonprofit purpose, which gave us the ability to offer scholarships and do all of these cool things um, to help the community. Um, and we, we teach at different places around the community and stuff and try to try to make this more than just, you know, a private academy. It's, it's something that's been nice. So we now have a publishing company. We also have a private high school. Uh, that's how we're a part of the NSDA now. Uh, and, and so we, we also have a, an adult uh, coaching business where um, I, I work with a lot of executives and, and uh, 
you know, supervisors, managers to help them with their careers. So you, how, how did this begin? So the first thing you do is you say, all right, I need, I need a space and you just, you created an academy. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, it was, it was in downtown. It was in, well, in Colorado, right on the float, you know, route, the, the Rose Parade. In, in Pasadena, you say Colorado, yeah. I mean, Colorado Sorry. Boulevard. Colorado Boulevard. Yeah. Pasadena. Unless, you, unless you did move to Colorado for a little and you go to <laughs> no, Denver. It's funny. They call Pasadena City College. They call it the University of Colorado <laughs> Boulevard. Anyway, so the uh, we, we started out in this little 1,600 square foot place mm -hmm. with three classrooms and a tiny little sink, you know, that we could wash our cups out in. And um, it just, we, we took, uh, one of the students heard that I had left from this other place and they told some of the other moms and pretty soon in about a couple of weeks, we had about 40 kids and um, it just, it just kept going word of mouth. And we were, you know, we had been working on what's our marketing plan, how are we going to advertise? And every time we were ready to advertise, we'd get 10, 20 more kids. And it was like, why? Why do we? Why should we advertise? So we've never advertised. Um, it's always been word of mouth. Word of mouth, yeah. And I'll tell you what what it is, and I'm sure you you uh, enjoy the same thing. And I could probably say that you know you may be one of the few with us, is that come Monday morning after a tournament, you get phone calls. Mm -hmm. You get moms calling you saying, "I want to be you know part of this." And so that was always our big day. We started staffing on Mondays big time so that we could take all those phone calls, and um, that's that's kind of how we grew. And we, 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 we got, we rented a room right across the hallway from where we were. It was only about, you know, 300 square feet, but we called it the Nova 42 secret laboratory. <laughs> that was what said on the door. And the kids really loved that. They always right. wanted to go into the secret laboratory and it was basically just a practice room or a testing room, whatever we needed it for. Uh, we got big enough that we moved into uh, downstairs, the whole downstairs of this building. And, uh, that was somewhere over three grand of square feet. Um, and then, um, we just kept growing and growing. And finally we've moved into this location as well as our Fullerton location. And for a little while we had a Santa Monica location too, but, uh, this one's big, this building's 11,000 square feet and it allows us to, um, do a lot of things. Um, it should be noted. A, I mean, that, that place is, it's gorgeous. The way you've decked it out is really cool. <laughs> it's, you've got so many really cool classrooms and, and this nice theme, like a space theme going on yeah. where it's all solar system themed. So you have what, like the Mars room and the yeah. Venus room or whatever. That's a, I, I think my wife's biggest regret is to say, you know, you can decorate it however you want. And I'm like, <laughs> really? <laughs> Cause man, I went crazy. I really did. I loved it though, because, you know, I didn't do it for me. I mean, I, a lot of this stuff is obviously my stuff and I've collected a lot of stuff over the years through the movie business, but I started putting it out and I realized the kids really loved it. They just mm -hmm. loved talking about it and asking questions about things. And so I figured out, you know, Hey, this isn't about me, you know, let's make this really fun. So we turned it into a place that I have two libraries. I have a, you know, political reference library downstairs and they have a literature library upstairs. Uh, we have a cafeteria now, which is awesome. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we have private offices for each one of our instructors. And that's that's kind of nice, too, that they have a place that they can set up. And I think my biggest success, honestly, is getting these these instructors to have full-time jobs. I think that's one of the things that um, I'm really happy about. Because in the speech world, it's so hard to find something that's, you know, full-time. So many of these coaches are just working two, three jobs and stuff. Uh, 
but I wanted to make sure that these kids had some continuity and that these coaches would be here. And so I have, you know, Ted with me, who's been here with me for seven years. And I, I have Murray, who's now coming up on three. I have Ebrew, who's uh, also, I think, coming up on four, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's um, that for me is to have a family of, of employees that, that are all love speech and debate and all care so much about these kids. And they're Honestly, all happy, that's... too. That's one of the things I noticed yeah. about. I mean, even yeah, even they're... during stressful moments, I think they and I think they they take their cue from you. You know, I think you're a happy person and you and I have tabbed so many tournaments together and even, well, they're, they are fun times. I mean, even when they get really stressful. Yeah, they do. I think that makes them a little more fun because at the end of the day, you're like, damn, like that one time we won't mention who, but when we had to come in and just rescue that tournament, Mm -hmm. oh my God. Yeah, we were. We were not even supposed to be tabbing, and this tournament was run so poorly that it was. He, the, the tournament director had printed out <laughs> rounds one, two, and three, like he'd prepared everything, pre-printed out the ballots, and then set them all on a table. And then when judges came in, he just said, "Yeah, grab ballots." And judges were grabbing round three ballots yeah, for round one, like, "Well, this has got my name on it," and they were just taken oh, off. And I'm just like, yeah. "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Come back! What are you doing?" It was, it was a mess. That tournament went south in the first 15 minutes. It was insane. Uh, but you know what's great, though, is what I'm saying is um, working with somebody like you, first of all, there's nobody calmer in the in the whole industry than you. I, I have to, you know, I look at you and I just say, God, I got to be more like Robert because there's not, I've rarely, I have every now and then seen you get a little heated, yeah. very rarely. But typically, you know, problem comes up and you're like, okay, here's what we're going to do. And everybody else around you is freaking out, sometimes me. Um, but we're always kind of guided by that calm, cool, collect, you know, we're going to do this. And we did. You you just steered us in the right direction. We pulled it off and, and uh, we made it into a tournament and it had an awards and everybody went home and nobody, I think, had any idea how terribly and how possibly terrible it was going to go at that point. Well, I just I remember so many times you you and I having really good I don't even remember the first tournament we tabbed together. It just seems like we've always tabbed together. And yeah, right. I I remember at that tournament just grabbing you and being like, This is a mess, man. We're gonna this is gonna be a nightmare to pull out of. And I remember us just kinda saying, We need to step in. Yeah, you know, we we could let this thing go because it's not really our responsibility to do, but if we do that work or this whole thing is gonna come crashing down. I, I mean, and and honestly, in all fairness too, it's you know, you look at the the speech and debate industry and it's not full of business people. And there's probably a good reason for that. Um, the people that are business people that have talent in speech and debate are probably running big companies. Um, and that makes sense. There, there's a lot of money there. There is not a lot of money in speech and debate, obviously. It's just, you know, it's part of education. It doesn't really have uh, but um, I, I kind of wanted to kind of show and change that to say that we can make speech and debate into something that is not lucrative, but this certainly is sustaining, uh, sustainable, mm-hmm. and that is also something that can give back. And I, I hope that um, what your academy and my academy have really proven is that when you really care about your students and you care about the people around you too, um, th- people will come to you. You know, people will work with you 
and that there's a lot of these places, you know, academies that came up that thought, well, we have to win. You know, that's the only way we're going to, you know, we're going to put out these uh, flyers and everything. We're going to get people in here. And I, I just think that there's, you know, a different way to do things. And, and you have always been somebody that I wanted to be around because you showed that you care about your kids. And what happens is your kids then care about you. And I saw that and I said, that's the kind of coach that I like. That's that's who I want to be hanging around. So I think that's why we were always tabbing because we wanted to get away from everybody else. No. <laughs> I'm joking. Cool. joking. <laughs> Only partially. Yeah, uh, I think one of the mistakes that a lot of coaches make, and it's like they intellectually know this, but it's hard to actually do it, is that there's so much focus on winning and there's not as much focus on education. And there's been mm -hmm. several times where I've really had to step back and go, what's best for this student's education? And yeah. it, I mean, sometimes like in classes, we will have a tournament coming up and somebody will ask me a question about like, um, you know, what is cancer? Like, what is that? Uh, what does that do? And I'll just say, you know, I, I, we've got a really important tournament coming up, but this person it, yeah. right now is thirsty for knowledge yeah. about something that has that. nothing to do with the tournament. Let's focus on that for a minute and let's yeah. just take them, take time away and just say there are other things beyond speech that we should discuss. And what is let's just answer this question. Let's really take the time, drill down on it and figure it out. And then sometimes that will turn into a speech for the student and they'll say that was really fascinating. I want to do a speech on that. Yeah. And that's happened numerous times and that might have hurt them in the short run of not winning at a tournament, not being prepared. Um, and one could argue that maybe I'm doing them a disservice because that's not really my role to teach them, uh, you know, how does, how did the great depression happen or something like that. But at the same time, when they're, when they're thirsty for that knowledge, I think you, you gotta, you gotta serve it up when they're ready for it. And when they're asking those kind of questions, that's important. And I think a lot of coaches really only want to focus on wins. They don't really want to focus yeah. on education. They don't want to focus on, um, establishing bonds, you know, and uh, doing this podcast, it's a, a reoccurring theme. Almost every guest has said that what they remember most about these tournaments are the bonds and the, the friendships that they forged yeah. along the way. Totally. I, I agree. And I, and I think, I think that's where, um, you and I have a lot of, you know, commonality that, um, it's, it, it there has to be a life element of this mm -hmm. because this is probably one of the most important life skills. And if we're taught that we're going to go out there and win trophies, um, what's going to happen is what happened to me. I remember going to my boss one day and I said, you know, I've been doing all this work. I've been working overtime and I really feel like, you know, just not getting the recognition. And he said, ah, you're one of those speech and debate kids. <laughs> and I, I said, well, you know, he goes, tell you what, call me when you get down to the lobby today after work. So I called him and I said, okay, I'm down here in the lobby. He goes, great. Look around. I said, he said, do you see any statues? Do you see any busts? I'm like, no. You don't see a bust of your head? He said, no. He goes, and you never will. Go home. Click. <laughs> it's just like, oh, that was Steve Goldston in, um, in Phoenix. And I just remember that all the time. It was just that turning point that said, dude, you're not going to get a trophy anymore. Yeah, you'll get some money. You know, and if you do the right things, you'll get a lot of money. But, uh, you know, people don't recognize hard work. You do. Mm -hmm. And it makes you feel good inside when you do it. And if it helps other people, it makes you feel great inside. And I think that's where I love speech and debate is that when you can show a kid that they, they have this confidence, 
that they can pull from it, that they can talk about things that are important to them. When or not, you're giving them such an important life skill that it doesn't matter if they get a trophy because when it comes time to talk at somebody's wedding or talk at somebody's funeral, they're going to have a skill set and that's going to make a difference. And they're not going to have that regret in their life that says, I should have said something. You know, I should have stood up. And that's, you can't, you know, that's not, that's not about trophies. That's, that's much bigger. So, you know, you, when you say disservice, that is not a disservice because when that kid has to face cancer, but through a family member or through somebody that he cares about, and he's got the knowledge that you gave him, he's going to feel very comfortable talking to that person and maybe even helping them. So, um, yeah, you know, I, one of the, the tests I do constantly, like my mental test is I always imagine what is, uh, I imagine you're at a college party, you're 20 years old and it's a house party and everybody's drinking beer out of their, you know, big silo, red sippy cups, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. And you're at this party and somebody comes up to you and they start a conversation and I want you to, uh, my students, this is what I do. I think when you're at that age, I want you to have something to say. I, I want you to be able to be interesting and be thought provoking and have something intelligent to say back and yeah. to not clam up and not be super scared and to be insightful in that moment. You know, when, when that, that party happens and what are you doing here? You're not just going, Oh, okay. Nothing. You've lost, right? <laughs> it, 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 you've already lost life and, and to yeah. actually have something insightful sure. to talk about. That's uh, so I, I, that's kind of my little litmus test that I, I, I always go to. And I, I think it's absolutely true. You're, you're right too. It's also weddings and funerals and, and all of these moments in between when you need to stand up in front of your boss and give a presentation at work or something like right. that. Like those, those moments are critical. And if we're not prepping our, our students for that, then we're, that's the ultimate disservice. Yeah, I agree um, firmly. Yeah, I really do. I, you know, I'm kind of old. And so I'm not, you know, I'm not long for this world because I, because I plan <laughs> on moving. No, I plan on moving to a different world. No, <laughs> <This, this laughs> that's why I say that. No, I. But you're, I, going, I mean, you're going upstairs to the Mars room, right? Yeah, exactly. Maybe Jupiter. <laughs> I, you know, but I, I really do. Th I look at this from this perspective that I've lived a lot of of life, and I've, you know, I'm a certified race car driver, <laughs> and I have, you know, sung opera, and I've done these really cool things in my life that I feel like I've, I've cheated death a couple of times. I've done these cool things. And I think to myself, you know, I, um, I want to be able to share and, and really help people understand that, um, it's not just about this short term thing about getting into an Ivy league school. It's, you know, and moms hate that when I say that, but you know, I, I didn't go to an Ivy league school and I took jobs from so many Ivy league candidates. You know, when I'd, I'd get a CEO job and I was up against MBAs from Yale or Princeton or whatever it was, I, I didn't feel good about that. But I kept saying to myself, why is that? And I, it always came back to that ability to communicate at a higher level, you know. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, you got to have results and you got to be able to know what you're doing. But if you can speak about it and you can inspire and you can motivate, um, there is nothing in this world that you cannot achieve. And I, I think that's my favorite part of this whole activity is that this is literally the tool that enables people to do amazing things. Mm -hmm. And it's such a powerful tool that I said, you know, 
this is my dream job. I love it. I, this is my career. I'm done. This is all I'll be doing the rest of my life is hanging out with Robert Cannon. Oh, great. And cabin tournaments. <laughs> Get out now while you can. And eating candy and you know, <laughs> all that stuff. I love it. Robert, you know, you're, you're my buddy. And I really, I really feel like I, I don't know how much fun at all I would have in this community if I didn't have you. I just You're an important part of this for me because... I do see some coaches out there, especially the young ones that um, they're, they're just here to get trophies and help people win at all cost. And they're doing some things that maybe they'll, they'll think about later on in their life, but um, that makes our job harder. You know, mm -hmm. it makes us have to do, to teach integrity and to teach honesty because um, we've seen it, you know, they're, they're not being taught that in, in some of these places. So um, that that's really important to me. Well, this is a nice segue into uh, another part of the interview that yep. I like to call the final round. So the final round is brought to you by ForensicsTournament.net. If you are creating a tournament and you'd like to host that tournament and run that tournament, we ask that you consider ForensicsTournament.net. Uh, it's run by a friend of ours, Danny Cantrell, who's painstakingly uh, tweaked and changed this model since uh, 2007. He's been running this website. Uh, and it's a great tabulation tournament website for you. It's all web-based. So if you are considering running a tournament, consider ForensicsTournament.net. All right, Mike, these are 10 survey questions that we ask every guest who comes on the show. So this is your yeah, final can I, round. Can I just say something right before that? Yeah. That last plug, I, I just totally concur. I just won't run a tournament unless it's FT. I just love that stuff. Me too, man. Sorry. Yeah. I, I, we were Sometimes. talking last night. We were looking around at a lot of the other um, the other yeah. tab software, and a lot of them have some real fundamental problems with them. But I don't know. FT, is so, FT is so easy. That's the best part. It's so um, intuitive. Do you know how many Anyways, people I've taken, I, uh, like, who've never run a tournament before, and within 20 minutes, I'm like, you're tabbing. You got yeah. it. You're good. Yeah. Just drop down menus. You're good. So simple. That's the way it should be. I think people. Sorry, I'm sorry. I think people just don't like it because they're not used to it, and they're they're like, "Well, I don't know that." Yeah. Well, it, it, get in there, and in five minutes, you'll figure it out. You're like, "Oh, this makes sense." Totally, and the support is the best. It is. It's great. Really. All is. right. So I'm nervous. Final, this final round. round. I got to mm -hmm. get juiced. I got to get ready. Yeah. Let's there see if go. you can pick a fence. All right. Question number one: Were you superstitious in speech? No. I, a lot of my fellow competitors were, they would do certain things. My son is, which is all funny. He's got to eat meat before he goes, <laughs> I, before the tournament day, he's got to eat meat the night before. But um, no, I was. I think this is so interesting. People's superstitions with speech. I've, <laughs> I've just heard so many different ones and like I, eating meat. And I, I, <laughs> I've talked about this podcast before. I used to have to clip my fingernails and I would have to do it in a certain order. Oh boy. And I used to have some, this necklace that I would wear. And I used to have this keychain that I would make everybody on the bus kiss. Uh, it was like <laughs> now in the middle of this coronavirus, yeah. I think like, oh my yeah, gosh, no. we're just spreading germs. Yeah. You can't even do the Rudy, you know, hit the sign on the mm -hmm. top of the, yeah, mm -hmm. I can't even do that. All right. So question number two, who is the competitor you most admired? Ooh. Hmm. I guess it would be Ben Sherwood from Harvard prep. Back then it was Harvard prep. It wasn't Harvard Westlake. It was mm -hmm. just Harvard prep Jesuit Catholic boys school. And Ben just set every record known to mankind back then. And a great policy debater, um, 
you just you just watch him and just say, how's he doing that? And I honestly didn't think I was anywhere near his caliber. Uh, but when I watch my son, um, it just reminded me of, of Ben. And I thought to myself, you know, I don't know how I created this guy, but this guy is so much better than I ever was. So uh, it might be my son. That, that's, that's a good uh, answering the question and then a nice political answer to the question. But, it, but with heart, with sincerity. It's true. Nice job. All right. Question number three. What's the most memorable speech or debate you've ever seen? I've ever seen. Um, I was early into coaching, judging, because um, I had been doing business and everything, and I got back into it. And I remember coaching or judging a team from, yeah, geez, I don't remember the teams. It was up north. It was at um, Stanford, I believe. Um, and I remember, I remember watching this team, and they were not only going so fast, they were just being rude. And um, at one point, one of the kids, an African-American kid was speaking and the other one asked him a question and, and, and he said, bro. And I remember this kid just looking at me like, is that cool that he said that to me? And I'm old fashioned. Yeah, I grew up a long time ago. And I, I just thought to myself, you don't know the you don't know the guy. He's not your bro. You know, and mm -hmm. it, besides the race thing, I just remember thinking to myself that from when I was doing speech and debate, we were taught so much about how important this was to our future and how it, it meant dignity. And my, my stepdad would tell me about manners and teach me all these things. And so when I got back into it, I thought to my, I saw that round and everybody was really mean. And I thought, where's this, you know, where's this activity gone? This, you know, they, there's not that care or respect. And I continued to see some of those things, but that was the round I think that really just stuck with me and said, we got to fix this. We got to make it, we got to make it respectful. We got to make it sure that these kids know that this is training for, you know, succeeding in life. And you don't succeed in life by being an ass, by being a jerk. You know, maybe so in stockbrokers or lawyers, I guess, whatever. But I, honestly, the best. Probably not even then, right? I mean, no, they're not. They're not. Yeah. Honestly, they're not. Okay, question number four. How do you explain forensics to someone unfamiliar with it? Well, uh, the knowledge of what the word forensics means, I've seen it so many times and so many coaches trying to stop, you know, it's about speech and debate. It's actually not. The forensics, the word forensics means training to be in regard to law in the sense that, you know, that's why there's forensic science. And so forensics was that we were training people to speak in training to be a lawyer or to speak in a legal way. And so that's why we've gone away from the word of foren the, wor the wording of forensics, but forensics in its own time has morphed and created into this bigger thing that says this is encompassing all of speech and debate. And mm -hmm. humorous interp doesn't really have anything to do with the legal community, but we know it's part of forensics and it always will be. And so words morph, they, they change and they become bigger. And so I, I talk about that first so that people don't you know get past the idea that we're dissecting bodies and and they get into this idea that we are training for the future and whatever it is that we want to do i like that all right question number five what was your most unusual inspiration for a speech <laughs> um i <laughs> I remember I was really tired and uh, it, it really just didn't want to talk. And so uh, I was doing an impromptu speech. 
and we, we called them something else back then. I'm not sure what that was, but I remember my coach gave me the, the, the prompt or the topic of patience. And so I stood up there and I did nothing. I did not move. I didn't say anything. And I just <laughs> stayed still. And he got so upset. And finally he goes, you have to say something. And I went, aha, my example has arrived. Today we're going to talk about patience. And he looked at me, shook his head. And he was like, you jackass. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what a great story. And I remember story. that because it was, you know, it was inspirational at the time. I even tell my kids, you know, you know, there's no rules in impromptu. Yeah. It's really one of those speeches where you can just have fun and, and drop to the floor, dance, sing, shout, whatever. It's so true. You know, I, I think I, I say this all the time. You know, I say when I try to explain impromptu for the first time, I, I say everybody feels like there is a way to do impromptu and there's not. There's there's no rules in how you have to structure impromptu. There's just conventions. There's a way that pe yeah. people tend to do it, but you can do whatever you want. And, and the, they'll often ask me, well, can I do this? You can do whatever you please. You're, You're not going to win. <laughs> yeah, And you may not. But then yeah. again, you might. You know, I I'm, love it. I, man, I love that. I love endorsing to my kids. Be different. Try it. Lose. Have fun with it. I had a kid in Berkeley once. He was out of it. And he went into his last round and he said, he, before he went, he said, coach, can I wrap my speech? And I said, hell yeah. And he got 30 speaker points. He lost the round, but he got 30 <laughs> speaker points. And I just remember thinking, and his parents watched him and his parents came to me and said, I didn't think this is what you were teaching him in class. And I said, I didn't. That's his just natural beauty, yeah. his natural talent. I said, isn't it amazing? And they go, yeah, it really was. <laughs> I love that. Question number six, has a speech or debate ever caused you to change? Hmm. I, you know, I, I, I can't put my finger on one, but I can probably tell you hundreds. I mean, I, I just get affected by listening to kids that want to tell me stuff, you know, that want to convince me of something. And so I try to make sure that when I'm listening, they realize I'm listening. I'm not just, you know, judging that I'm, I'm hearing what they're trying to get to. And a lot of times they're not getting to it, but I, I feel like I think I know what they're getting to or they're trying to get to. Mm -hmm. And that's the real beauty of this too, is as a judge or coach, you can help people get to that power, get to that meaning. And so every speech has the potential to definitely affect me. That's nice. Question number seven. You talked about this a little bit earlier, but what did you do with your rewards? <laughs> I uh, didn't melt them, and I never used them as a doorstop. Uh, I did like trophies. I got about, I think I was up to around 120, which at that time I would tell people. You know, you tell people in France, they say, I got 120, and they they wouldn't believe you. They'd be like, no way. You can't get that many. You know, you, ha you have to go to so many tournaments, which I did. But then I look at my son's 312 trophies. <laughs> <laughs> and and I say to myself, yeah, see, you can do it. Um, I, I, you know, trophies are fun and they really, they're great to get. And, you know, there's nothing like it. It's just kind of like, ah, look, I did it. I worked hard and I, and I nailed this. Um, but I remember giving them all to my school and I went back to my school and they weren't there. So I'm sure they were thrown out or whatever. I kept, I kept a couple. I kept my national qualifier. I kept my, um, I actually... I actually didn't – I found a, a trophy. One of the trophies I kept, I was second place in NFL Congress. 
back then it was the NFL, not the NSDA. Wow. And um, I just remember looking at that going, oh, my God. And then the other one I noticed was I was third place in the state of Oregon in our, our state championship in extemp. I actually, it was called boys extemp back then. Uh, yeah, because girls extemp is completely different. Yeah, well, you know, I don't know how it was different. We always looked at it like, wait a minute, those topics aren't that different. Really? Why are we doing this? You know, but it was. Anyways, I think, the, you know, so the, some of those trophy and then my trophy that my first my first debate win uh, at Sprague uh, and um, I won uh, Cross X. Um, it was novice Cross X and it was with uh, Dave Bansmer, who's my partner for quite some time. Um, and I, I kept that one. But in my 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 uh, other trophies, like with Jay, um, there's a guy, Talcott, Jay Franklin. He's a big partner at one of the big law firms. He's on CNN all the time. So is. Bart Crockett, one of my other friends who debated with us. And um, I see that, you know, their trophy is there still speaking. And for me, my trophy now is every time these kids win something, I feel like, wow, what a great accomplishment. I feel mm -hmm. like I've gotten a trophy just indirectly by that. But um, I do keep my sweepstakes. I tell the kids, okay, the sweepstakes trophies, if we get any of those, I get to keep that one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So they and love to get so. sweepstakes. Yeah. yeah, that's about it. That's about it. Question number eight. What speech skill do you use most often in your day-to-day -day life? Uh, humor. The, the ability to incorporate humor into speaking is not only important, it's vital. Uh, I, I was in business long enough to know that you could give a hell of a great speech, but if they're bored out of their mind or if they're, they're not paying attention, then what did you do? Um, you've got to be able to incorporate humor into what you do, um, even if you don't have it. And it's amazing how I can help kids find that humor. Um, some of the stoic, really crazy, nerdy kids that just have such incredible humor. I had one kid who found it and uh, went from losing every tournament to starting to just place and winning in a prompto. And it's just because he incorporated humor, I felt like this is such a, an important part of it. So that's that's probably my my secret weapon is to just try to be entertaining, you know, not necessarily slapstick funny because I love like airplane and things like that, but also mm -hmm. that real subtle and sometimes even dark humor uh, can be so powerful. So it's not like bringing up Monty Python speeches. Well, if the if the opportunity is right, because <laughs> no one expects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> All right, sure. question, question number nine. Why didn't you quit? Quit what? I don't know. Why didn't I, you quit? Well, you know, I, I never I never quit. Isn't that funny? I just don't think there's ever been a chance where I've quit. I've been forced to quit. I think the bankruptcy forced me to quit. Having a bankruptcy is just one where they just basically pull the rug from underneath you and say, hey, you're quitting. <laughs> and you don't, you don't have a lot to say <laughs> you, about You have it. a choice. Yeah, but I don't think I've ever quit anything. I have walked away um, from opportunities. I've resigned. I don't consider that quitting. Over my door into my classroom, there's a saying. It says, you haven't failed until you quit trying. And every day I go through that door and I see that and um, I just won't quit. I, I just keep trying. And, you know, you find success and sometimes you don't, but that's the beauty. I don't know very, very few successful people that I know haven't had failures in their lives. 
whether it be bankruptcies or some kind of, you know, downturn or whatever it is. Um, and if you look at them like obstacles that, you know, things to learn, um, you learn, you build, you grow. And those are the things that I live by. So um, I don't consider quitting. I consider stepping away from things sometimes. I got to tell you, I do not know how you run the SCGFL. I give you <laughs> so much credit for that. It is such a difficult position, so much work that you put into it. I feel like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, you know, just not even, a, I'm, I'm the vice president. I feel like I'm some kind of a mailroom clerk compared to you uh, on this thing. I, I just look at it and say, oh my God, I, you know, when you respond to emails or you take care of a situation, I always look at it and go, yeah, I could have helped him, but I didn't. And I look at it and I'm like, damn, this guy's amazing. I, I hope he never quits because I am, um, I've thought about resigning myself just because it's such it's so full of you know craziness and politics sometimes that I just said you know I don't want to be this, uh, and that's why I think you and I both stay away from high school um, a lot because it is just so much politics. I appreciate you saying that. That's nice of you, Mike. Question number ten. This is my favorite. What was the best speech advice you've ever received? Mm. Speech advice. My best life advice was uh, Steve Goldston, who said the key to success is ownership. And he didn't necessarily mean owning your own business. He said he meant owning everything you do. You know, if you work at a company and you're picking up the trash off the ground and you're acting like an owner, you'll, you'll be noticed. And that really stuck with me from a life perspective. But I think from a speech perspective, it was Bob Withicum who said to me, you know, you have to have, I got to turn off my phone there a little bit. Uh, you have to turn you off your phone. To, yeah, turn off your phone. That's being good saying to you. Here's the key to success in speech. Turn off your damn phone. Uh, no, he said, he said to me, you got to write things down. And I know that sounds so simple, um, but it really made sense. He taught me how to journal way back in 1977, 78. And if you ever look at all my journals and I have, I don't know, maybe 50, 60 journals. I have my entire life recorded. I have every business I've ever started. I have every project I've ever worked on. And I have it all either cut and paste, you know, I, I take it out and I paste it into the book or I write it into the book and I carry a journal around with me all the time. And I write my goals in it, 10 goals a day. Um, and those are things that come from advice. Brian Tracy, I worked with for a little while and he said, you know, you successful people know what they want. And I said, I pay you money to tell me that. He's like, yeah, think about it. Is if you know all the time what you want, you'll always be looking for those opportunities. And I was like, oh my God, that's brilliant. And so I write down my goals every day. And so every day I'm always looking for those opportunities. So that's kind of a speech advice too. That's great advice. I love that advice. I, this podcast is, is great for me for nothing else, just because I get to hear everybody's great advice yeah <laughs> I think wait a minute of, that's part of why i love the uh the last question is i get to learn a little something too I'm like gonna send you my bill <laughs> <laughs> jesus well no, before I, you I, do send me a bill i'll wrap the show up um mike if people want to find you where can they find you they can obviously go to God. the nova 42 website right uh, i thought you meant like what bar yeah I don't even drink. It's funny. I drink maybe twice a year. So 
Um, I, you know, Nova 42 for sure. Nova42.com is we're, our website. Isn't that good? And honestly, it's just something that we haven't had to work on because people keep calling us. So I'm like, why do I need to put some effort into it? But I probably should. Um, the best way to get me is to email Mike at Nova42.com. And uh, I usually get about 400 emails a day, but I try to go through them, you know, uh, throughout the day if I can. Um, I actually get like 4,000 a day, but I get, I filter out of most of them, <laughs> uh, but I get, you got to remember, I got four different businesses going on. So I got a lot of different businesses that, that give me email and I've gotten a couple different emails, but the best email to reach me for anything this related would be Mike at Nova42.com. All right. And as for us, if you want to reach us to us through Twitter or Instagram, our handle there is uh forensics podcast dot. No, it's just forensic podcast. I think I'm about to say dot com. There's no dot com on a Twitter or Instagram <laughs> handle. All right. Uh, Mike, this has been great, man. Thanks so much for coming hey, down and, no. and, and thank and, you to your office and yeah. talking to a, to me. Anytime. I, I do know how to wrap up a show. I can't seem to do it right now, but I do know how to wrap <laughs> one up. Um, but it's been great talking to you and, and I always smile and just listen to some of these great stories that you have. And, and I love listening about your life because you've had such an interesting one. And I will thank you, you for sharing it with us. Will you promise me that you'll tell your audience your golf story some point? Have you done that yet? I have not. I've not oh my told God. the golf story. The best story ever. <laughs> I swear to God. Ever. I love you. Thank you for having me on the show. It's been fun. I, I just, I, you know, I honestly, I couldn't wait to get on it. So I appreciate you. Well, you me some it's, it's the same here. It's great having you. So until next round, keep talking. And as Mike Kyle says, turn off your damn phone and write things down. <laughs> I'm from an actress. Oh, yeah.